Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, Westside. Good morning, Battersea. Good morning, online. Hello, if you are listening to me in your ear on a podcast. And hello in the room. My name is Joe. We are back for week three of four. We are looking at uh, what it means to be human, exploring how we live in and share the biblical vision of what it means uh, to be a human being. We are looking at the stories that we are surrounded with that tell us what is good, what will make us happy, what to do when life gets hard, how to love, how to have your best life. All these stories that we are around and surrounded by every day. Uh, because stories and, they, and habits, they form us. They have a profound impact on who we are and how we live. Um, and so as part of this series, we're using the Being Human lens, um, which is this little graphic thing um, that helps us see the impact of some of the cultural stories that we're around. We look at the world in terms of our significance, that was two weeks ago, uh, connection, that's today, um, and then presence and participation, which will be next week. Um, in life groups, uh, during the week, we're exploring more of the habits that emerge from some of these ideas. And on the Sundays, we're digging in underneath, trying to get below the skin, as it were, of this, these stories as we seek to live life in all its fullness. Uh, so yes, two weeks ago, we looked at the core aspect of significance, looking at the idea that we are image bearers. We represent, we project, and we share God's likeness out into the world, um, and we share the image of a good and true God, this God who knows us intimately, and we can trust what he says about us and who he says we are. This week, we're in the second core aspect. We are in the idea of being human as connection, that we are connected to each other, that we're made for relationship, that we matter to each other. When Andy, my husband, and I were preparing for the arrival of our first daughter, we were told to write a birth plan. Now, um, <laughs> I knew this was a waste of time. My husband, on the other hand, wanted to do what he was told. And so we had to write instructions for how we wanted the birth to go. What interventions, drugs, setting, we wanted that kind of thing. But as we all know, babies don't read birth plans and they hear the word instructions and laugh. Early on in my labor, it became clear that our imaginings of water births and deep breathing weren't going to be reality. Um, instead, we were faced with consent forms and operating tables. Now, my beautiful daughter is catching me up. And uh, sh when she arrived, I was overwhelmed with joy and responsibility. But alongside that, I was also left feeling really quite raw and actually quite dehumanized by what I'd just been through. But then 
little miracles started happening. People who I didn't know smiled and cooed at my baby in her pram. Little just gestures of touch were extended as old women patted my hand in solidarity. Strangers spoke words of blessing over us as we stood in supermarket queues. Person upon person wove a rich tapestry of blessing and honour over me and my family, restoring my dignity and healing wounds they didn't know about and I hadn't even really acknowledged even to myself. People who I had never met, who had no idea what I had been through, offered me back piece by piece the humanity that I had lost. To be human is to be connected. This is uh, the space of our humanity for relationships. It's where we experience the vitality and the vitalness of justice. It's where we long for peace. When we ask, what does it mean to be human? What does it look like for me to live the best life? We're not asking an I question. We're having a we conversation. Our relationships are central to our humanity. They can be a source of joy and of happiness, fun and meaning, but they can also be the, um, the source of pain, of fear, of trauma and anger. We can grieve loss, rage against injury and despair from betrayal. For good and for bad, we are connected. We matter to each other. So as we uh, explore what it means to be connected, we're, surprise, surprise, going to look at the Bible. Um, and I want to have a little look at one of my favorite little stories in um, Genesis. Genesis is the opening book of the Bible. Um, it is these sort of prototype stories. We catch glimpses of what God is up to throughout the whole of the God story in their essence, in their beginning state in Genesis. Um, today, much of our lives, um, our international relations, our economies, how much money we have in our pockets, are affected by things that happen on a global scale. Who controls the gas pipes? Who has access to rare metal earths or to the oil? And it has always been like this. In Abram's day, Abram was the forefather of the people of Israel. He was sent by God out to the land of Canaan. Um, he was the first pro uh, rece recipient of the promise that God will be with his people. Um, in Abram's day, it wasn't gas or oil that controlled the economy. It was pitch. Trade was done by sea you see. Um, so to carry the goods, you needed boats, you needed ships. And in order for boats and ships to work, they need to be waterproof. You waterproof your boats with pitch. Therefore, you need access to tar pits, which is where this pitch comes from. So whoever controls the tar pits controls the economy. They are the most powerful areas and regions. The tar pits, we're in two towns, called Sodom and Gomorrah. So their kings were the most powerful and wealthy in the region. 
So we join this story in Genesis 14, and we start with what seems like a classic tale of invasion and economic opportunism. Four city kingdoms decide that they want the tar pits. They are ready for that wealth. So they invade Sodom and Gomorrah and claim the tar pits and all its associated power as their own. A simple shock and awe operation uh, follows and their objective is all but achieved if it wasn't for the thinking of one young lad. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah was the hometown of a man called Lot. And Lot was the nephew of Abram. Abram now lived out in the regions beyond Sodom and Gomorrah and was basically a wealthy king in his own right. The Bible tells us he has 300 men at his disposal. He has a small army. So, knowing the relationship between Lot and Abram, this young lad runs to Abram, tells him that Lot has been captured and that Sodom and Gomorrah have fallen. Abram gathers his armies, calls in his allies, and intercepts the four kings who have packed off Abram, uh, Lot and all the wealth and are heading home. He intercepts, saves the day, and takes back the spoils of war. Now, these spoils would easily make Abram a king and the most powerful king in the region in his own right. Um, he is a foreigner and he is about to become the single most influential, important, wealthy, powerful man. But this is where the tale stops being classic. You see, Abram doesn't emerge as yet another conqueror. He doesn't claim Sodom and Gomorrah as his own. Instead, he refuses to subjugate others out of fear or monopolize the wealth of the region for his own desires. He does something else entirely. Why? Turn to the person next to you. Why? Why? Why would he do this? <laughs> okay. We are told. Okay, in the Valley of the Kings, the indebted king of Sodom is coming to beg for his life and for the scraps of Abram. He is here to plead for mercy um, and so that he won't be captured in the same way the kings were going to. But before this meeting takes place, Abram is intercepted by a mysterious character called Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness and justice. Melchizedek comes and ministers to Abram with bread and with wine and offers him a blessing. The meal and the wine teaches Abram a new name for God, El Ilion, God Most High, and reminds Abram of an old truth. God is creator. God is provider of all things in heaven and on earth. And Abram responds by gifting Melchizedek with a tenth, a tithe of everything that he has had. And he refuses to accept any of the rescued king's riches. Instead, he gives it all back. The encounter with Melchizedek reminded Abram of God's promise to him that God would provide for him always 
that everything belongs to God anyway. His relationships, the way he relates to other people, does not need to put his, his own needs first. He does not need to be afraid of what others might do to him. He does not need to hoard. He does not need to put himself first because God has promised he will always do that for him. Nobody needs to be indebted to Abram because he doesn't need to hoard anything. He bears the image of the God Most High, a loving God. He doesn't need to put himself first. The God story paints us a picture that to be human is to be connected, that we share in the likeness of a loving, relational God who is utterly generous. Therefore, we project and participate in relationships. When they're generous, they lead to flourishing. We don't need to be selfish. We can be selfless. We can move towards others with compassion and openness. And we can nurture habits that means we can give freely and value others above ourselves because we are so highly valued ourselves. But I'm going to guess that that isn't the hallmark of every relationship you've ever had. I'm going to guess that we haven't always seen selfless relationships. I'm going to guess that you haven't always been treated with generosity and you haven't always been generous to others. Because our relationships aren't always selfless and God-centered. They're often selfish and based in fear. And fear leads to pain, injury, and isolation. So the cultural stories that tell us what our humanity looks like and how we are to live, we've been looking at these foundation stories. We started a couple of weeks ago with the secular story, this idea that doubt, not God, lives at the center of our beliefs and that we can question each other and we can question what is true. When we took God out of the foundation of our story, we were left with a bit of a vacuum. What gets to fill God's space? And over the last few hundred years, we've got very good at putting ourselves right in the center of our story. We're left with an individual story. It becomes all about me. We want to be authentic. We want to be true to ourselves. We don't want to be shaped by others, constrained or restricted. We are the center of our lives. We take the throne and everyone else orbits around us. To be human becomes about my significance, my connections, my presence, and my participation. Everyone else becomes other. We get to look within ourselves, see how we feel, see how we think, how our emotions and how our encounters and experience shapes and affect us. And that becomes our truth. We get to write our own scripts, be true to ourselves. The role of church or of school or institutions is to give us a safe space to flourish and to project ourselves out in the world. Self-expression. Self-expression isn't selfishness. In fact, it's your moral duty to be who you are, to be true to yourself, to be authentic. But the problem is that self-expression can very quickly descend into self-preservation 
where we can only rely on ourselves and we have to look after ourselves because other people might hurt or damage us. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a group of us were camping in uh, the southwesternmost tip of Portugal. Uh, we'd been interrailing around Europe and we'd been praying and serving um, other travellers and tourists along the way, sharing about who Jesus is. This was our halfway point. Now, because we were interrailing, we got a taxi to drop us off in the middle of nowhere on a cliff edge. Who thought it, The taxi driver thought we were bonkers. Anyway, so we were camping on the thing and he, we'd arranged for him to come and pick us up the next morning. However, late into the night, we were heading back to our tents and I suddenly let out a piercing scream as pain floods my foot. In pitch black, none of us knew what was happening except that I was writhing in agony and we were stranded. We had no car, we had no phone, we had no one around. And it's fair to say the group got a little bit panicked um, as we started to walk and hobble the two miles into town. Now, um, for those of you who know me, this may not surprise you. Um, I'm relatively independent. Um, I like uh, to be in control. And that gets a lot worse when I am trying to hold things together. So when one of the guys on the trip tried to help me walk, I responded less than well. Um, I screamed at the top of my lungs, get off me, and I slapped him full force uh, on his chest. Um, he was only trying to help, but I could not handle it. I couldn't bear it. Anyway, we finally reached uh, civilization, finally got loaded into a hospital, finally got diagnosed with what we think was a scorpion sting. And uh, Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Um, Yes. Anyway, once the antidote, I can actually feel it throbbing. Um, actually, when the antidote ran through, I was fine the next morning, but my mate turned up and showed me his chest um, where it had a bright purple, perfectly shaped handprint of a bruise where I had whacked him the night before. Because wounded people do stupid things. Um, when we are hurt, when we are hurting, and when we are scared, we lash out. We go into fight or flight. We uh, seek to protect ourselves. Our rational brain gets overwhelmed, and we will do almost anything to stop the pain or to prevent the pain in the first place. We are afraid of being hurt, but fear separates us. It separates us from other people, even the ones trying to help us. And we don't tend to respond very well to perceived threats when we are scared. But life can feel quite scary. We've been talking about it here at Balham this morning. Not mysterious why on earth is my foot about to fall off scary, but how do I get to the end of the month with enough money scary? What happens if I don't find the partner, have a family, or ever feel fully loved scary? How do I cope with everything changing and so unsettled? Scary. In the background, buzzing like some annoying, faulty electrical device, most of us are affected by fear. We become convinced that we have to look after and protect ourselves because no one else is going to. 
we retreat to safety, we look after ourselves, and we often seem to blame somebody else for the threats that we see around us. And our whole humanity gets unraveled in the process. So we look to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Abram. He is the rescuer who demands absolutely nothing but gives his whole life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek, the high priest coming to represent, project, and share in the image of God completely. Because the life of Jesus shows us the image of a God who selflessly and bravely loves us and enables us to love others the same. When Jesus came to earth, he showed us how to be fully human how to bless, heal, care, and provide. He is the better king of justice and of peace. When Jesus is honoring the woman who is anointing his feet, raising the widow's son from death, or encouraging Zacchaeus to pay back all that he has defrauded, we see how Jesus is constantly modeling God's heart for the marginalized and the silenced in our society. And he mediates on our behalf, He is in front of the Father right now, absolutely interceding for us so that we can come back into relationship with God. If you feel alienated, if you feel isolated, if you feel separated from who God is and who God says you are, know that you are loved. Know that Jesus is for you and advocating for you right now. This is what it means to be connected. On the night before Jesus died, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the darkness of night, as his friends failed to stay awake and support him, he looked at the journey ahead and he was scared. He was terrified. The Bible says he sweated blood. Historians didn't think that was possible until Nazi Germany. That's how scared Jesus was. And he prayed that if this hour could be taken away from him, everything is possible for you, Daddy, but not my will, but yours. But such was his certainty that God loved him, that he could acknowledge his terror, even of mice, and in the next breath say, not my will, but yours be done. Because unlike me, when Jesus was afraid, he didn't lash out. He didn't panic and he didn't run away. When the hour came, he did not flee and he did not fight because he trusted that God's love was enough. In Jesus, we see a bravery that welcomes God's activity. It trusts in his goodness. A certainty that what is will not always be. In Jesus, we see that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. We've already heard that scripture this morning. I think God might be wanting to say something today. You do not have to be afraid you are loved. And you can love other people wholly and completely because he loves you first. So as Jesus journeyed to the cross... We see uh, something in his nature 
The English word we use to describe uh, Jesus' death on the cross is this fancy word, it's called atonement. Um, and we say it all the time, but I never realized until fairly recently that it's actually a coined word. It is at one meant. We literally put it all together. So the atonement is a moment of at one meant. In this moment, it is the central coming together of all of the storylines of the God story. And crucially, at the moment of Jesus' death, Jesus becomes at one with our sin and our disconnection. In the Jewish tradition, a lamb, perfect and without blemish, would be given as a substitute for the people. The people would stretch out their hands and place their sin, their separation, their failings onto the lamb. And the lamb would be cast out of the community, carrying their sin and their separation, their falling short, out of the community, literally out onto the rubbish dump where it belongs. When Jesus died, he died out of the city gates. He literally took on every separation, every sin, every moment of falling short, and carried it out onto the rubbish dump where it belongs. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far Jesus has separated you from your sin. You can be reconnected with God. You can connect with others. You do not have to protect yourself. You do not have to be afraid. You are loved utterly and lavishly. We can put others before ourselves. There is nothing to fear. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.